20 years ago, the United States started a war against Iraq. There was a protest movement at the time. Did it matter? Do protests still matter? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. He's not breathing. Can I get a pulse? Barely. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy. People don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Imagine if democracy were so real and such an integral part of the actual workings of our American government that we could only go to war with the democratically decided approval of the citizens. Obviously today, we're a long way from such a dream, but America's brilliant founders were uniquely aware of the dangers of war-making without the consent of the governed. Having seen the terrible results of an executive, a king, with the sole power to make war, our founders in the 18th century, uh, creators of the Constitution, included Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, whereby the Constitution grants Congress the sole power to declare war. Actually, Congress approved its last formal declaration of war during World War II, and you may have noticed there have been plenty of wars since then, without the inconvenience of an approval by the people's representatives, Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, Iraq, and today's military support for Ukraine's defense against the Russian war. I'm probably forgetting some other wars. Oh yes, the eternal, intentionally never-ending war on terror, and the war on drugs, of course, too. Of course, without the constitutionally intended backstop of congressional approval, there is still always a way of making our voices heard, taking it to the streets. Yet amazingly, it seems most people today have bought into the idea that eh, protests just don't matter. Well, that's not accurate. Today on Keeping Democracy Alive, we'll look at the now overwhelming belief is it real, or have the powers that make a lot of money from wars successfully convinced us of something that is just not true? That the truth is protests do matter. Our guest today is David Courtright, who's written an essay in The Nation, looking back 20 years to the start of the American war on Iraq in the wake of 9-11, titled The Impact of the Anti-War Movement 20 Years After the U.S. Invaded Iraq. It's a reminder that protest can and does matter. David Courtright, thanks so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Thank you. Happy to be with you. David Courtright's Professor Emeritus at the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies at the Keough School of Global Affairs, University of Notre Dame. He's the author of A Peaceful Superpower, Lessons from the World's Largest Anti-War Movement. That's put out by the New Village Press. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And during the American War in Vietnam in the late 60s and early 70s, the right tried to convince us we protesters were not patriotic. I remember the bumper stickers, America, love it or leave it. Hard hats famously attacked us physically. Many of us, including myself, experienced tear gas, jailings, and police violence. And I can tell you that as one who grew up in the 50s with an unaltering sense of deep patriotism, 
I'm quite proud to have been part of that protest movement. And the fact is, we did make a huge difference. The anti-war protests were a major factor in bringing that unwinnable, wrong-headed war to an end. Filling the streets for the world and our members of Congress to see, as they say, voting with our feet clearly made a difference. In fact, later on in the 80s, when Ronald Reagan was pushing to expand the war against the freely chosen government of Nicaragua, it was that prospect of large, angry street demonstrations that deterred Reagan from doing that. Fast forward 20 years ago, February 15, 2003, there were large protests in cities around the world as we were ramping up to the war against Iraq. And, of course, the U.S. went to war anyway. The mainstream media was pretty much universal in its boosterism of the upcoming war. Shock and awe did happen, and it's not surprising that so many believe those protests had no influence. You say that's short-sighted. How can that be? How did they have an influence? It's certainly true that the movement had an impact. If you look at the memoirs of some of those who were involved, and also especially Bob Woodward's books, he had two books about the conduct and playing for the war, and interviewed all the top participants. Uh, and on a number of occasions, you see that Bush is talking with Condi Rice, for example, about the problem of public opinion. Opinion is turning against us. Time is not on our side, he told her. He wanted to rush ahead to start this war before he lost the battle for public opinion. Uh, so uh, that, and if you look carefully at the way in which the administration planned the war, or actually refused to plan effectively, yeah. uh, it did so in part because it didn't want to create the political impression that this was a real war coming on here. Remember, they kept talking about it as the use of military force uh, to overthrow the dictator, get those non-existent weapons of mass destruction. Uh, but the idea that this would be a long-term war with a big occupation, uh, they refused to admit. And uh, in part by trying to tell that tale, they shortchanged the military. They didn't plan for the occupation, which turned into a chaotic, violent, horrific mess. Uh, and so in many ways, our efforts constrained their willingness to admit about what they were starting to launch here with this war. Um, and also the fact that this was a movement that was global, uh, that never before have you had so many people around the world protesting all at once. Uh, February 15 was the largest single day of anti-war protests in history. Uh, easily 10 million people in cities all over the world. More than 600 cities had protests. In London, there were more than a million. In Rome, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, they say there were three million. Uh, in Spain, there were several demonstrations of uh, millions of people. So, uh, And that worldwide protest had a significant impact on governments in addition to our own. So in Germany, for example, uh, they refused to support Bush's war, the German government, uh, in Canada, Canada has always been an ally of U.S. military action. Whenever the Brits and the Americans go to war, the Canadians are there with them. Mm. But in this case, because of overwhelming public opinion against the war in Canada, because of huge mobilizations that were taking place across the country, and especially outside Parliament in Ottawa, as they were convening to decide whether to go to war, 
the weight of public opinion convinced Prime Minister Christian at the time uh, to say no. And he gave this historic speech uh, in the parliament saying that Canada would not be joining the American and British war to cheers in the galleries and in, outside in the streets. Uh, and this same kind of scenario of protest acting to convince governments not to support the so-called coalition of the willing mm-hmm. uh, played out all across the world. Uh, in Turkey, in Spain itself, remember that Spain initially did go into the war with the U.S., but a year later there was an election, and the conservative government was voted out by the socialists, and the socialist platform had a number one uh, issue was, as soon as we're elected, we're pulling out the troops. And in fact, within two weeks, <laughs> they had pulled out their few thousand troops. So uh, all of this, plus the fact that uh, if you look at the United Nations debate that occurred at this time and the interplay between that debate and the role of the UK and even here in the US, uh, a really interesting uh, dynamic unfolded where, uh, of course, Bush didn't want to go to the UN, but he was Mm. convinced by Tony Blair and the Brits that uh, he had to do so because in the UK, Blair was trying to convince his people to go along with the war. There was overwhelming opposition in many parts of the country. The Labour Party, his own Labour Party, opposed going to war. Uh, and uh, Lord Goldsmith, who was sort of their kind of like an attorney general, senior legal advisor to the government, he issued an opinion, I think it was around January of '03, so just a couple of months before the invasion, saying that a war fought against Iraq without UN Security Council approval would lack legal grounding, meaning that uh, British officers who would participate and troops who would participate in such a war could be guilty of war crimes. Mm. Because under international law, uh, one is only allowed to use force either in self-defense, clearly not the case in Iraq, or if there's authority granted by the UN Security Council. And the UN Security Council, on two occasions, had the opportunity to decide whether or not it would approve the use of force in Iraq. Right. And both times, they voted no. Uh, And the U.S. could only muster three or four governments to support its position on the Security Council. And and that's significant, given the history of the UN, the way it's always been subservient to U.S. interests. Right. Uh, But on this one occasion... uh, refused. And I see that as partly because of the power of public opinion, the ability of movements around the world to convince their governments to say no. Uh, So you had this sort of a a dialectic, if you will, between people in the streets and the diplomats at the UN. Mm. Uh, And the diplomats, most of them were skeptical. They didn't want to vote for this thing. But, you know, the U.S. is twisting arms. They're exerting a lot of pressure. Uh, But then their governments are saying we can't go yes, can't say yes on this war. We can't go into this war because our people don't want it. Uh, and and so you you saw how the interplay between protests in the streets and uh, decision making at the highest levels. So it actually clearly did matter. And there's so, so many things to talk about the 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 power of language. I mean, you know, you don't want to say war. Uh, you know, people think of World War One, World War Two. In Korea, it was not a war; it was a police action. Uh, mm-hmm. In in uh, Iraq, I don't know. Did they did they actually call it a war? And I'm talking. No, and you know, when the Congress did vote 
to authorize the use of force, the authorization to use military force right, uh, in, oh, in October of 2002. Actually, that uh, authorization is still on the books, although yes. uh, there's a good chance, we hope, that the, uh, the Congress in the next few weeks here will be voting to uh, with, you know, remove that authority. But what the members of Congress were voting for was not to wage war on Iraq, because Bush kept saying he was lying, but he kept saying, uh, well, I haven't made up my mind. This is only to give weight to our diplomacy, to put pressure on Saddam for us to convince him to give up those nasty WMDs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, fools as they were, so many members of Congress fell for that. Uh, and I remember you mentioned uh, the Vietnam anti-war uh, movements. One of those who was in the Senate at the time, of course, was John Kerry. Uh, and Kerry, among all of them, should have known better, having been part of this uh, unjust, illegal war in uh, Vietnam. And he had the courage to speak out against it back in the early 70s. But, uh, you know, years later, he went along with the herd and uh, should have realized that Bush was lying. And, and they manipulated the uh, Congress into voting for this authorization and and saying, no, this is not a vote for war. Mm. This is a vote for coercive diplomacy against Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> coercive diplomacy. Aha, uh-huh. boy, yeah. that, that, I wonder who got paid for coming up with that uh, phrase. That That's a good you one. Yeah, the champions of euphemisms. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and... and and what you know? What was the reason for this attack? Who knows? I mean, th- there's there's always egos involved here. And and I remember when uh, you know Lyndon Johnson continued the war because, as he said, I don't want to be the first president to lose a war. So his ego uh, really resulted in deaths and dismemberments of an awful lot of people, and tremendous you know uh, PTSD. But uh, that was about his, and and one has to wonder why this war happened. There was, of course, the uh, his his dad, Bush's dad, uh, you know, kicked uh, Iraq out of Kuwait and didn't go all the way. And so maybe this younger Bush, George W., had to look more like a man. There's that whole, you know, looking like a man, coercive diplomacy. Whew, boy, that's a new one on me. I hadn't heard that before. But, uh, the, the, you know, the reasons and the herd, as you say, it's it's tough to go against the herd. And I remember at the time in 2003 being amazed at the the mainstream media just all marching in lockstep, you know, in favor of the war to, to build up this herd. And I, I, I think that shows that voices that speak out matter. You don't want a lot of voices to speak out against uh, a, a military action like that. Yeah, the press showed astonishing gullibility, I've written in a recent article, uh, in accepting all of these lies and claims about weapons of mass destruction, and the claim that Saddam Hussein was somehow linked to the 9-11 attacks. Uh, and, and I remember uh, my colleague George Lopez and I at Notre Dame were doing research into the WMD issue, and we looked through all of the UN reports and every other source, and we were trying to report that one can never know with certainty, but all of the UN inspections show that they had nuclear and chemical and other such weapons, but they were systematically located and dismantled during the 1990s, and there was no evidence of any more. 
And then the inspection started up again uh, in the December of 2002, uh, and they were able to operate up until the invasion. And you remember when uh, El Baradai and Hans Blix, who were the heads of the uh, Atomic Energy Agency and of the UN Weapons Inspection Commission, uh, they came to the Security Council and they said straight up, uh, we have not found any weapons of mass destruction. We have not found any indication of nuclear weapons in Iraq. And yet still they went ahead with the war. Uh, so, uh, but the press should have known better. And and this idea that uh, Saddam was somehow connected to 9-11, yeah. this was uh, continuously repeated by the administration. Remember they had this uh, soundbite that Condi Rice used and Cheney and Bush also used it, that we don't want the smoking gun to be a nuclear mushroom cloud. Oh, right. You know, it's harrowing and scary. Uh, and, of course, at the time, you know, this is only a little over a year after 9-11. Yeah. So the American people are still traumatized. Yes. They're still fearful, yes. uh, angry. Yes. Uh, and they took advantage of this. It's shameful uh, for a war that ended up killing many, many more people who died than on 9-11. Uh, and that caused so much suffering for the people of that region. Uh, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> perhaps hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children actually died, and and it, yeah. you know, and and for what? Uh, it's the manipulation of language. They have to have the language there. They have to to have the herd mentality, and they really did. I, I, I the media at the time, I, it was amazing to me. But they had learned. I mean. <laughs> Most, it seems like we did the obvious lesson of Vietnam. The most obvious lesson was you don't go into another country that doesn't want you there, that, that you know, there's no way you can win. They're fighting for their own independence. If you don't have their hearts and minds, you can't win. Uh, but that lesson seems to have not been learned, aggressively not learned. But one lesson yeah. that was learned was control the media. Have, you control know, the media, have, exactly. You know, and our, our press is supposed to be like the fourth estate, an independent source of monitoring, a check on wrongdoing. Um, but over the decades, the Pentagon has learned to tame the press. Uh, again, you referenced to Vietnam. Back in Vietnam days, a reporter could get over there and hop on a ch chopper, as they say, and go out to a battle zone and figure out what's going on. Right. Uh, after that, the Pentagon said, no way. Uh, now, if you want to be a press reporter in war, you have to be part of a pool, yes. and you have to register, and then we will decide who gets in the pool, and then you will be trained according to procedures, and a lot of the stories have to be checked by their military censors. I mean, this is what we're facing now. This is pure up propaganda. We say, well, the communists are terrible. They, they control the press. Mm. So do we. I mean, we've been doing it now for several decades. Uh, and that's, so. that's extremely important, no question about it. And I remember at the time the embedded reporters, and I was thinking, embedded reporters? I remember, you know, the reporters during Vietnam, they could go into the trench, they could go anywhere, and they reported on it. And the the powers that be, the war-making powers that be, boy, they learned that lesson. Don't let people see the truth. Ah, for those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is David Courtright, who has written an article in The Nation magazine titled The Impact of the Anti-War Movement 20 Years After the U.S. Invaded Iraq. And 
power, of course, you know, there's weapon systems. That's that's one way to measure power. Uh, and when when we commonly think of the last remaining superpowers on Earth, you know, it's not the, the empires of the uh, 19th and 20th century. It's largely the U.S., Russia, and now China. They're like pretty much what people think of when they think of the world's last remaining superpowers. What do you think New York Times reporter at the time Patrick Tyler meant when he was writing about those rallies in 2003, the peace rallies, declaring that there were two superpowers on the planet, the U.S. and world public opinion. How aware was our government of of that power, do you think? Well, not very much, but I I think it's an undeniable reality that uh, in recent decades, and this is a trend that's been going on in history of people mobilizing, going to the streets, engaging nowadays with social media and other tools, uh, the, the role of civil society has become a significant factor in the world. Uh, people previously were not as able to engage uh, as they are now. Uh, so on whatever issue it is, uh, we're seeing a significant voice of public opinion. Opinion. Uh, think about the, the Black Lives Matter protests. Uh, that issue, of course, of police brutality and systematic racism in our law enforcement systems and in our government has been around. People have been fighting it for a long time. There's been a long movement uh, going back to civil rights movement and, and well before. Uh, but uh, suddenly, uh, with this incident, the, the killing of George Floyd and the power of social media, and that we could all see it on video, uh, ignited uh, world opinion in a way that hadn't been possible before. Or if we see the the women's march when uh, Trump was first elected, when so many hundreds of thousands of women showed up in Washington and then cities all over the country, uh, and people just got out into the street and said, he may have been elected, but we're not going to accept him, and we're going to fight against him every bit. And uh, it was a powerful movement, and it was partially effective, uh, as the Black Lives Matter movement has been. And it's the same thing with issues of war and peace. Uh, We have that power. And there's more and more uh, resistance in the streets to uh, unjust wars, to the building up of nuclear weapons, uh, the diversion of all of our money into militarism rather than meeting our social needs at home. Uh, and so this, this, it's the power of civil society, really. And there's a number of political science books that talk about this, how the structural uh, developments uh, within the world have allowed for an empowerment of people from the bottom up uh, so that the political process is not only decided by the political decision makers at the top, uh, but there's great power from below. And this, this power exists even in totalitarian states. You know, China is very controlled totalitarian communist government, but you know, they had protests not too long ago uh, about uh, the COVID lockdowns. Mm -hmm. Uh, And people say, we're fed up. We've been locked down for more than two years. Uh, and suddenly the Chinese government just changed. Okay, you know, and they opened up. And and there are often protests in China over local issues of corruption by the political party leaders or uh, pollution from industry or whatever it may be. Uh, and even in Russia today, I mean, Putin has cracked down brutally on civil yes. society and on protests. But look how so many men voted with their feet when that mobilization in uh, October of uh, this past year, 22, right. um, they wanted to call up 300,000 new troops 
uh, and the estimates are at least that many fled the country and went over to Kazakhstan or Armenia or wherever to escape. Uh, and over the last year, a million or more people in, have left Russia. Then, And that's a form of rejection of the state of the war that Putin's uh, trying to fight. Uh, and, you know, Putin puts up the big, you know, strongman mm. image and rallies his minions. But uh, across the society, there's growing doubts. Uh, and it's obvious that Russia has not been able to win because they're fighting a war that they know is unjust. And uh, whereas the Ukrainians are fighting tenaciously because they're defending their own homeland. Uh, and that equation always benefits uh, the the defender, uh, even though obviously Ukraine is you know somewhat smaller than Russia and mm-hmm. outgunned in many respects. But but they put up a hell of a fight because uh, they believe in what they're doing and many Russians do not. It, that the motivation I, that that um, yeah. probably one of the best films about the war in Vietnam is uh, Hearts and Minds. That if you don't yeah. have the hearts and minds, you can't win, no matter how much weapon systems you have. I mean, I suppose winning in Vietnam had uh, every Vietnamese been killed, then mm-hmm. I suppose that could have been some sort of win. But if there was anybody left alive, they were going to fight for their country. And and that kind of motivation is there. And now that, you know, it's it's different. Back, you know, 100 years ago, we didn't have, uh, yeah, 50 years ago, the, the internet and the social media that we have now. And I wonder about... Uh, do, do, do people think that there is actual power in that? I mean, people grouse and complain on it and you know make a lot of noise on that. But I wonder if the, the decision makers, the people who are making the war, do they do they factor that in with what the social media uh, voices will be saying? Well, nowadays they do, and partly because they by hiring their own trolls. So yeah. all these governments now True. have hundreds and hundreds of employees whose job it is to control social media. So in Russia, I've, I've been contacted out of the blue by some Russians who are part of the anti-war movements, and they're just asking for advice and help. And and uh, they share how uh, whenever they put something out on some of the social media, they get pounced on by these uh, in people who are obviously working for the Kremlin. Uh, and the Chinese do the same thing. Uh, but the power of social media is real, and when you have millions of people simultaneously sending focused messages, uh, and when you use the uh, tools of the uh, social media uh, to get people into action, it can really be important. And I teach social change classes to students here, and, and I try to tell them that, yes, social media is powerful, but you have to get out from behind your screen. And and we've learned over the years, how to use social media so that you coordinate p- actions at the local level uh, in order for people to then go to the congressional offices or you know have protests at the com- at corporate headquarters, whatever it may be. Uh, if you look at, for example, the women's march movement mm-hmm. after the big protests in January 17, right. you know, uh, they went back to their communities and got organized, and it was called indivisible. Uh, and that was organized through social media. And I remember we, we would get messages here in our local district in Indiana. Okay, everybody show up at the congressional office at 7 a.m. And uh, we'd all get out there and there'd be hundreds of people. Uh, and in the old days, it would have taken, you know, 
weeks perhaps oh. to organize that kind of protest. But with this, if you have a ready audience, people who are engaged, they're constantly communicating through social media. And then you say, okay, this is the time, show up on such and such date, and people do it, then that's real power. Because political representatives, the elected officials, uh, they often ignore protesters. They make fun of us. They uh, mock us. Yes. Uh, but they're afraid of bad publicity. They're afraid of protests that could get out of hand uh, because it affects their power, especially at the local level. Uh, it's harder to do this at the presidential level, but uh, members of Congress have to get elected every two years, yes. Senate every six. Uh, they all watch their local newspapers and uh, try to track what's going on on local broadcasts and what the media traffic, social media traffic is saying. So the more we can be on those in those spaces and sending a critical message, uh, the more influence we have on those decision makers. And actually showing up, and people talk about the power of money, and there's tremendous power of money. I mean, the, the millions and millions of dollars that are spent on campaigns, but what those dollars are for is to convince people so that they will vote. And there, there's no lack of evidence that money doesn't always produce a winner, that people can still vote. And so the protests, people actually showing up, physically present, uh, they, the, the elected officials pay attention to that because they know, yeah. they know they have to stand for re-election every couple of years. And the, the strength that's there in numbers. I mean, it's if people haven't been in protests, big protests, quite frankly, it's a lot of fun to be, you know, united with a whole bunch of other people who feel the same way you do and have the same ethical and moral standards and want to push for it. It's, it's rather invigorating. On the other hand of that strength is manipulation of fears. And President mm -hmm. George W. Bush is not alone in manipulating the fears of 9-11 to gain support for his war in Iraq. How effective do you think his manipulation of, of fears, even though you know, there wasn't truth to it, how effective were they in gaining uh, enough support for his war in Iraq? Well, that was the core part of their communications message. Uh, you know, the, the White House realized in the spring and summer of 02, because Bush had basically already decided he was going to attack. Right. But the public support was thin. Uh, and there's a passage, I read uh, part of Trent Lott's uh, memoirs where he talks about uh, he was worried because he was a war supporter, but he called up Dick Cheney and says, uh, you know, you guys need to do more with public opinion. Uh, and in the White House, they set up a whole press room. Uh, and they launched the press campaign to, quote, sell the war mm. in early September after the summer. And he, there was a cynical remark, well, you don't uh, launch a new product in the middle of the summer. You wait until the fall. Uh, and and very much the core of the message was fear. It was, you know, why do they kept keep emphasizing the WMD? Because it was the one thing they knew they could uh, reach the public. If they had tried to convince people on a theory of regime change, here's what we really want to do. Uh, we're going to go in and change this government and create a new government. People would say, what? <laughs> uh, but if you say this guy's got weapons of mass destruction and he's handing off to terrorists and we just got blasted by terrorists, we've got to take action. Well, people paid attention. You know? And it was all the manipulation of fear. And so often, I think, if you look at the uh, powers of dictators and war makers oh, in yes. history. Uh, it's the fear, you know, the fear of the other, 
uh, fear of, of you know, Hitler's uh, anti-Semitic messaging was intentional to rouse up the fear of the people. And now you have, you know, Putin talking about supposed fascists and, right. you know, God knows what he's saying now, but, but they're the arousing fear in the people of Russia uh, against <laughs> their neighbor Ukraine, which is ludicrous on the face, but mm-hmm. that's how he's trying to uh, win uh, acquiescence to his war in Russia. And, and that to a lesser degree, we still you know, domestically have the culture war where there's fear whipped up of a different other, you know, gay people, trans people, uh, mm-hmm. black people, whatever. It's it's the other that people are, you know, supposed to be afraid of being replaced, as as they said down in Charlottesville. Uh, and and that fear is immensely powerful. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is David Courtright, uh, who is a, uh, a professor emeritus of inter- at International Peace Studies at the Keough Institute of Global Affairs. And he's written a good article in The Nation magazine, The Impact of the Anti-War Movement 20 Years After uh, the U.S. Invaded Iraq. And so many people these days they don't think there's anything we can do. The, the protests don't matter. And you mentioned earlier a little bit about uh, President George W. Bush's conversation with his then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice on on this concern about the lack of international support. Uh, and that wasn't so much... Well, I guess it would have translated to military support, but tell us a bit more about those conversations. Yeah, it wasn't just in uh, internationally, it was also in the U.S. And I think uh, they kept saying that they weren't going to listen to the protests. Remember, Bush had this one wisecrack where, you know, he called the protests like a focus group. (laughs) Uh, But uh, and and Tony Blair said he's not going to be moved by the protests. But if you look at their memoirs or what their top people were saying, they were very worried about the protests, especially for Blair, because, as I mentioned, the, the Labor Party, his own party, uh, was opposed to going to war. Um, and this was part of our strategy in the anti-war movement to uh, build up the doubts that people had. And we also tried to address some of these wild claims that Bush was making. So, you know, uh, we put out messages that there was no link between Saddam Hussein and Iraq. Uh, And we talked about the fact that all the inspections showed that there were no weapons of mass destruction. So we tried to uh, counter their message. And polling was done during these days. And Uh uh, when, uh, as always, and, and the polls showed a majority of Americans willing to take military action against Iraq throughout this uh, period. Uh, but if the question was asked, would you support war against Iraq uh, without allies or without UN approval, uh, then the support dropped down to 20 or 30 percent. So we kept trying to hammer away in the anti-war messaging uh, that there was not support internationally. The UN was not supporting what we had done. And there was no connection to the uh, 9-11 uh, attacks from, from Iraq. So it was a constant pressuring and trying to uh, create doubts for the public and to show that the public opinion was not in favor of the war. And 
there was the whole thing about Bush's timing, the, the fact that he was seemed to be in such a hurry to move ahead. People, even mm. uh, those who supported the war, said, what's the rush? You know, uh, Saddam Hussein's not going anywhere. There's no timeline here. Uh, well, the rush was because the tide of public opinion was starting to shift ah. against the war. Uh, and the numbers were steadily going down. They were up and down. Remember when uh, Secretary uh, State Powell made his infamous oh, yeah. presentation at the UN Security Council in February with claims about WMD. Uh, well, they got a bump in the polls, but it only lasted a week or two, and then it started going down again. And so, uh, especially there in in March, there was a meeting that Bush had with the governments of Portugal and Spain uh, in the Azores uh, right before the invasion. And uh, there again, Bob Woodward uh, got the words from Bush as to what went on. And, and what he reports is that uh, Bush said, uh, we can't wait any longer. We can't uh, wait. Public opinion is uh, rising and there's concern of demonstrations in many cities. So we have to act now. Uh, and that's true because if you think about it, that was actually at the same time. So February 15 was one of these global protests, unprecedented in world history. Uh, and the movement was growing everywhere. Uh, Right after that, there was a what we we organized at Win Without War, this uh, mm -hmm. virtual march where we urged people to call Congress. Like it was like the last weekend of February, and the phones were ringing off the hooks. So it, we you know we figured there was at least a million people who tried to call into Congress that day, and there were candlelight vigils uh, all around the world. Six thousand vigils around the world uh, in early March. So it's all growing, and I was in the middle of a lot of these organizing groups and with Win Without War in particular. And there were plans underway to sponsor new rallies. We were starting to get now at that time real support from uh, media personalities and artists, uh, Hollywood, uh, the popular artists. Uh, David Byrne helped to organize a whole number of uh, performers. And uh, and so the, you can begin to see that uh, people realized that this war could happen. It was a real danger, and uh, more and more people were becoming mobilized. Uh, so I think Bush recognized that if he waited another month or two, uh, he would face uh, a political obstacle to, to going ahead. So, and uh, they, they still went ahead, and there was that shock and awe, yeah. and we can still remember the, the photographs of the big explosions. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people died. The country of Iraq was... Uh, still remains uh, quite uh, chaotic, I believe. I I don't know what, if anything, was was gained in that war. I just uh, I, I don't really understand. Well, Go ahead. Well, the lives, so many lives were lost. So there's uh, a study was done, you know, the, uh, from epidemiologists and scientists on uh, um, the number of violent deaths that occurred between '03 and 2011, and a number of studies were produced. But the one that seems to be most accepted and the mo most rigorous scientifically says that uh, about half a million people right. died right. because of the violence that we unleashed in 03. And then you have to remember that before the war was the sanctions. And we put these uh, oh, draconian yeah. comprehensive sanctions on Iraq beginning in 1990 and kept them on all through the 1990s. Uh, and there was a severe humanitarian crisis and hundreds of thousands of vulnerable people died uh, preventable deaths in Iraq uh, during that period, during the 90s. And again, this is uh, 
voluminously documented. Many studies were done, you know, and I've, I've looked at this in depth myself. And a conservative figure would be three, maybe 400,000 preventable deaths mm. during the 90s from the sanctions. So during the course of our policy interventions through sanctions and war and occupation, perhaps as many as a million people died. Mm. And also, you know, then afterwards came ISIS, you know, after when the war in Syria right. broke out. Right. Uh, and really, ISIS was a offshoot of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Yes. And there had been no al-Qaeda in Iraq under the rule of Saddam Hussein. Right. Uh, for whatever his many faults, Saddam Hussein hated al-Qaeda because it was a competitor. Uh, but of course, once he was gone, then al-Qaeda came in and led the insurgency. Uh, and then it came back around 2012 or so, 2013, and stronger than ever. And of course, the whole vicious uh, ISIS war that went on for several years. Uh, so Iraq, Iraq has only started to recover from mm. decades of war and violence and uh, the oppression of sanctions uh, just in the last few years. And, and it seems, my understanding is that uh, Cheney actually uh, did pushed, you know, d did some manipulation to, to kind of create ISIS, to create uh, 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 al-Qaeda in, in Iraq, to have something to fight against that we could be afraid of, that we could fear. And uh, it, it, what a surprise, it, it got out of hand. And you mentioned earlier, yeah. Uh, yeah. go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I mean, he made that claim constantly. Uh, but there just simply was no basis to it. I mean, yes, uh, Zakawi apparently did meet mm. Saddam once, uh, mm. but uh, that doesn't mean there was any uh, ISIS presence in Iraq, and there never had been of any organized form, any threat, uh, while Saddam was in power. Right. Uh, once he was gone, then they came in, and uh, so, yeah. Yeah, what a, it, 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 you know, unintended effects. We mentioned Tony mm -hmm. Blair earlier. The The only major world leader to ally with Bush's war was Britain's Tony Blair. Uh, right. with, with the Labor Party as it was at the time, boy, not the Labor Party that I would recognize. What, why did Blair do what he did? What were the factors, do you think, and how did that affect his standing at the time in England? And what about his legacy today as a result? And what does that yeah. say about the power of protest over the long term with regard to Tony Blair's legacy? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, on the second part of your question, certainly his legacy has been ruined. Yeah. I mean, uh, although the Queen knighted him the other, you know, last year or a few months ago, so that's absurd. But uh, among the people, uh, Tony Blair's reputation was ruined. Uh, you know, he was uh, ridiculed as Bush's poodle, uh, and uh, he was just following along with Bush's uh, game. Uh, and, you know, his... You know, he was one of the greatest leaders of the Labor Party in history. Three elections they won, but now he's gone down in history for one thing, having uh, started an illegal war and going along with Bush's foolhardy adventure. Uh, why he did it, it's hard to know. I think there were mixed uh, considerations here. Uh, Blair really did believe in military intervention as a means of upholding human rights. He was all about the NATO intervention in um, Bosnia and then in Kosovo. And he thought that was a great thing. Uh, and, and then the Brits, of course, had, had intervened in Sierra Leone to uh, try to end the civil war there. It was relatively successful. Uh, and so he, I think he believed that uh, military force could be a kind of a righteous 
sword to uh, protect human rights and advance uh, freedoms of people. Uh, uh, although I think at the beginning of the Iraq uh, crisis, uh, Blair was deeply skeptical. There's a, a couple of the memoirs of the people from the White House that have been written. And one, uh, the, the uh, Rydell, um, I forget the last first name, but he was there in the White House and he was on listening in the room when Bush made calls after 9-11. And one of the first persons he called was Blair. And while they're talking right then, this is two days or so, three days after 9-11, um, Bush says, I think Saddam was involved. And the remark from the people who were in the room was that Blair's, there was like a guffaw or uh, mm-hmm. couldn't believe it. Uh, and, and there's also a position, some people say that he wanted to be involved and went along with it because he thought he could tame Bush's uh, militarist impulses. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know. I think it's a, but he was a true believer. And uh, he really did believe in this idea of humanitarian intervention. This became a doctrine, you know, and, and uh, most people adopted it and Blair believed in it. It's, it's still out there. Yes. Uh, it was, I think, thank, the one, one, one positive aspect of all of this debate in Iraq was that that idea received a well-deserved rebuke. Yes, uh, because there's nothing humanitarian about attacking a country and killing hundreds of thousands of people. So, well, the, the United Nations exists. It was created to to stop wars, uh, and there's the the Security Council. And apparently, you you point out that what happened 20 years ago was the first time since the UN's founding that the United States could not get full Security Council approval on a national priority. So who is the Security Council, and in what way did they develop what you call a creative dialectic between the Security Council and global civil society? I mean, that sounds pretty significant, and it sounds like, gosh, maybe that's the way the UN is supposed to actually work. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, of course, the Security Council is the representatives of the five permanent members, so U.S., U.K., France, uh, China, and Russia. Uh, and they have the veto power. And that's a design flaw uh, that Roosevelt put that in when it was first created back in 44 and 45. And um, and that was the only way he could get it politically accepted in the U.S. Ah. Uh, and so what we have then is a problem. When one of the aggressor states is one of those permanent five, which happens sadly often, uh, the U.N. can't do anything. So... The U.S. was never going to allow, and the U.K. in that case, was not going to allow the Security Council to try to prevent the U.S. from going to war. Uh, we have the same thing today. Uh, U.N. Uh, just recently voted, again, uh, to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine and to demand that the Russians withdraw their troops. Uh, but that was with the General Assembly because the Security Council could not vote on it because Russia is sitting there and will not allow the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it's flawed. On the, on the other hand, it's what we have, and it is the supreme security organization in the world, right. according to international law. Uh, and uh, it is true that Bush went to the Security Council to try to seek approval. Uh, but uh, the council was skeptical to begin with. Uh, you had France and Russia adamantly opposed to the invasion of Iraq. And then many of the non 
permanent states. So the council has the five permanent, and then there's 10 other members who are elected according to two-year terms, and they rotate in different regions around the world. Uh, so at that time, one of those countries was Germany. Another one was Mexico, uh, Chile. Uh, and in those governments, uh, the U.S. was putting on intense pressure uh-huh. to vote for the war. Uh, and uh, in Bush's memoir, he talks about uh, his conversations with some of these um, presidents. And so he talked about, he, he called the president of Chile at the time. And he kept saying, well, Mr. President, we really need your support on this. And the Chilean president says, well, Mr. President, our public opinion is 80% uh-huh. against. Uh, and, uh, you know, he hemmed and hawed, but he never said he would support it. And when the, when the vote came up, Chile was not there. It was not going to support the war. Uh, and Mexico and others are the same. So these governments uh, are facing a public which is overwhelmingly opposed. They've got the big superpower telling them they have to do it. Uh, but they had to go with their own public. And not just that it was overwhelmingly opposed in public opinion, but people were out in the streets. So it's one thing to take an opinion poll, but it's another thing. It gets added pressure when people are out in the streets, when yes. they're showing up to protest and are concerned enough that they're going to be start yelling at you from the street corner. Uh, so that pressure uh, convinced the members of the council that they could not accept and would not support the Bush-Blair war. So a lot of people can believe that protests don't matter, but we have an awful lot of evidence, as you're uh, pointing yeah. out, David. And you mentioned you Go ahead. that maybe this is the way the UN is supposed to work. I think it is, because if you look at the charter of the UN, it's so interesting. It starts with, we the people of the United Nations, in order mm. to prevent the scourge of war, join together to form this world organization. Mm. So we the people. Uh, and so often at the UN, the people are far distant from any of the debates. Uh, but in recent history, it's changed. Uh, in the Iraq war, that voice of we the people all across the world had a real influence. And if you look at the debate today on climate issues and environmental issues uh, and the conferences that are held, uh, the COP conferences in, in France, uh, those are uh, meetings of member states from around the world, but there are also meetings of civil society. And you have tens of thousands of people come and protests and marches and demonstrations occur uh, before the governments go to the mm. environmental conferences and then at the conferences. Um, and you see the same thing with a lot of other kinds of policies. So uh, the, the We the People part of the UN Charter um, has become more of a reality in this era of civil society empowerment. And in this era where people in the streets and in their social media and in their political engagement locally begin to mobilize and pressure their elected leaders to change. And for those who may have just tuned in again, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest, David Courtright, who's written an essay in The Nation uh, about protests. Do they work? He's looking back 20 years in 2003, February 2003, uh, after the U.S. Uh, invaded uh, Iraq. And as, as you say, the ways in which protest influences policy are not always apparent. Movements can win as they appear to lose. And yeah. it does 
it still has an effect. It frustrates me that so many people think, oh, protests don't matter. They don't listen to us anyway. And that's it. it it's, it is frustrating and surprising. Yeah. Your article includes a fascinating 2010 quote from Senator Lindsey Graham, certainly not a man of the left, when there was talk of withdrawing troops from Afghanistan. This, mm-hmm. this quote, fascinating, and this is from Lindsey Graham. You know what I worry most about? An unholy alliance between the right and the left. And I think that's really possible. On the right, we have Senator Rand Paul. He's spoken out against overseas military adventures along with his colleague to the left, Senator Bernie Sanders. It's exactly what Lindsey Graham feared. And there are people on the genuinely conservative right who, you know, oppose uh, unilateral military action. Obama floated the idea against Syria, and you remind us that dozens of liberal Democrats joined scores of conservative Republicans in warning the administration that any strikes without congressional approval would violate the Constitution. So it still matters. Tell us about that, please, and that possible right-left. Right. Uh, the anti-war cause is often associated with the left, and, and left parties and left movements often do take a lead in mobilizing the pressures initially. Uh, but it needs to be a transpartisan uh, issue because uh, it, it affects everybody across the political spectrum. And, and you're right that many Republicans, uh, more traditional Republicans, uh, have opposed war. If you think back in history, you know, Henry Ford, for all of his limitations and his white supremacy and all the rest, uh, he was opposed to war. Remember that he helped to fund some of the citizen efforts to try to prevent World War One. Yes. Uh, and Andrew Carnegie, uh, again, you know, very limited person in many uh, positions that we would strongly disagree with. Yeah. But on the question of war, uh, he was opposed and it's a kind of a position that war is bad for business. It's bad for commerce and for the uh, ability of people to enjoy their uh, lives. Yeah. And so um, these, these are fundamental human issues. And we need to organize our movements in ways that can appeal across the political spectrum. Uh, so, for example, here's a, a good example. Um, this uh, authorization to use military force that... Right was on the books, has been on the books ever since 02. Hopefully Congress is about ready to uh, get rid of it. And partly because the resolution that's going to be brought up to the Senate has bipartisan sponsorship, uh-huh. including Senator Te- uh, Todd Young here from Indiana. Now, Todd Young is a very rigid conservative, uh, but I, I've met him uh, a couple times. He came to speak at Notre Dame and uh, He's, he's kind of a realist. He's a Marine Corps uh, veteran. Uh, and, you know, he thinks you should use the military when it's necessary only. Uh, and let's use it wisely and, you know, that sort of thing. So that's a, that's a constituency that may not agree with us on many things. Right. But on the question of uh, preventing wars and reining in our excessive military uh, spending and the development of all these weapons, I think there are a lot of Republicans who can support us. Interesting. So that that move is coming up in in the U.S. Senate, and what's it called? If people want to uh, the, get the authorization to use military force, the AUMF. Um, the original sponsor of the amendment to withdraw that authority was a Congresswoman Barbara Lee. I was going to wonder <laughs> about her. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. She was the stalwart, the only member of Congress who refused to authorize the use of force after nine eleven. And, of course, she also opposed it for the Iraq war. Um, but that's now come up, and um, 
uh, I guess in March, at some point, it's expected that there'll be a vote. Uh, so. so people can get in touch. Uh, I don't know if there's a, a number on the bill or something so that people can get in touch with uh, if, if they just get in touch with their member of Congress to say, please uh, withdraw the uh, a authorization on use of uh, military force. Uh, Correct. It, yep. it can... revoke, revoke, the, revoke the authorization to use military force is the, the, what the language of the amendment will do. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Well, fascinating. We can do it. You know, people, it's, it, it is frustrating that uh, people, so many people believed that protests don't matter, but they do matter. In fact, back to World War One, just a quick one. Uh, before the U.S. entered the war, most people were against the war. But Wilson, when he decided to do the war, created the Creel Commission to orchestrate a massive public relations campaign. And it worked mm-hmm. and it created a real high-pitched war fever. They know that that they need public relations. You got to have the public support for these things. It does right. matter. It absolutely matters. Thank you so much for being with us today. Your book is uh, is called uh, what? Uh, a peaceful a peaceful superpower. A peaceful superpower. Lessons from the world's largest anti-war movement. And, and New Village Press. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, let's get out in the streets if we can. And I know we yes, can. Thank, thank you so mm-hmm. much. Thank you. If you enjoyed that discussion, don't miss a single show. Subscribe. It's all free. iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and of course, the website, keepingdemocracyalive.com. Thank you.